How many of you here know the golden rule? You've heard of, you are familiar with the golden rule, right? That's the, the majority of the room, I imagine. I saw hands go up. Um, if you are one of the very few not familiar with the golden rule, we will get you up to speed, don't worry. But most of us are at least familiar with it because it has been introduced to us um, probably at an early age, likely in school at some point. Um, some of you may still be um, regularly seeing it. Perhaps maybe your employer and your workplace might have it up on a poster of some kind, something like that. But most of us were introduced in elementary school. And I, I know that's, for me, I vaguely remember um, being introduced um, to this. I want to say it was first, second, or third grade where I was in my classroom and there's a big poster that has the class rules on it. And one of them was the golden rule. And so um, that stood out to me. And so I was introduced to the golden rule in elementary school. The version that I have memorized is treat others as you wish to be treated. All right, perhaps you have a similar version memorized, but what's fascinating about the golden rule is that it has many different versions of it. Not only in our culture, but in many religions, worldviews, philosophies, and so on. Here's just a few examples of those. Uh, Buddhism, for example, says, hurt not others in ways that you yourself would find hurtful. Confucianism says, do not unto others what you would not have them do unto you. Greek philosophy, just generally, would say, do not do to others what would anger you if done to you by others. Hinduism says, this is the sum of duty. Do not unto others what you would not have them do unto you. Humanism would say, don't do things you wouldn't want to have done to you. Then in Islam says, do unto all men as you would wish to have done unto you and reject for others what you would reject for yourself. So we can see that the, the golden rule is universally viewed and adhered to as at the very least a moral and ethical guidepost. Right? The Christian faith also has its own version of the golden rule. Right? We have our own version of this as well, which Jesus introduces to us in Matthew chapter seven during the Sermon on the Mount. So I would ask that you would open up with me to Matthew chapter seven, and we're gonna look specifically at verse 12 with the golden rule, but then also work through verse 14. If you're using a pew Bible um, that's in front of you, you'll be on page 812. And if you do not have a physical Bible and you would like to use that for today, you can do that. If you can keep that as well, we want you to have God's word. Just to kind of get us back up to speed, you know, Tim last week uh, preached on um, just right earlier, right before this, Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And, and he, he said that this was really an attempt, Jesus is landing the plane in the Sermon on the Mountain. So these things that we are praying for, these things that we're asking for, ultimately to be able to, to follow and adhere to the sermon, the things that Jesus had been calling us to, to this point. And so Jesus is landing the plane. We're getting close to ending the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and so the golden rule here this morning that he, um, uh, he kind of introduces to us is another step towards the descent of that plane landing, we'll say. And if we're being honest, though, just on the surface, it feels like odd placement for the golden rule. It feels a little bit random, but as we know, Jesus being the great teacher that he is, 
It's not random. It has a purpose here, and we're going to see that. So look with me at verse 12. Jesus says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So there it is. In verse 12, Jesus introduces his iteration of the golden rule. He says, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Doesn't sound that much different than the others, does it? On the surface, it sounds largely the same. The fact that the golden rule transcends different faiths, worldviews, and so on has led people to believe that Christianity, our faith, it is relatable to every other religion or worldview. And some would even lead, this would lead others to say that Jesus is merely a good teacher. They'd say, see, look, what he teaches is what we believe over here. What Jesus is teaching, they believe over there. Now, of course, statements like this are largely made in ignorance because Jesus very clearly taught more than just the golden rule. He taught much more than the golden rule. And not only that, simply put, just because there are two worldviews or two religions or two philosophies that have a few things in common, that does not make them the same. So that is a fallacy that some people choose to believe. In fact, as he introduces the golden rule here in verse 12, Jesus shows us what makes it different as well as why it's placed where it is in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. There's the golden rule that most know, but he doesn't stop there. He says, for this is the law and the prophets. This phrase the law and the prophets, it appears elsewhere in scripture, several different places, and, and here's what it means. Um, when he says, for is the law, he's referring to the Old Testament law, what God's people, what Israel was given in the Old Testament, right? That's the law, the prophets, that'd be the message of the prophets from God to God's people. And so really, when we see this phrase, law and the prophets, that's encompassing in reference to all of the Old Testament, a message, the message of God to his people in the Old Old Testament. Jesus uses this phrase, law and the prophets, later in Matthew. In Matthew 22, Jesus is being challenged by a lawyer who would be an expert in the law and is asked, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replies, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And here it is. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So to, to make this very simple, what Jesus is saying, right? Here's the greatest commandment. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind and love others. And when he says, and this is the law and the prophets, or this, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets, he's saying a, a nice summary, what the law, the Old Testament law boils down to, it's love God Right? With reverence, see him as holy and love other people. Love your neighbor as yourself. So the entirety of the Old Testament law, it's boiled down into this great commandment. 
Paul echoes this idea in Romans 13 and Galatians 5 as he's talking about love. And he says that this, the law, he says it is fulfilled in loving our neighbors as ourselves. So he focuses on the second portion of the great commandment, but says largely the same thing. So for me to carry out the second portion of the great commandment and to adhere to the golden rule, what it does is it changes my perspective. It forces me to take my eyes off of myself and onto others. That's the the function of this. When I love my neighbor as myself, I'm looking at the way that I love myself and care for myself as number one and says, take your eyes off of yourself now in light of that and love others in the same way. Jesus says, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. So it starts focusing here, what do I want to have done to me? Well, now I need to turn that outward and do that for others. And so the the function of these things, it takes our eyes off of ourselves and outwardly onto others, and we do this as an outpouring of our love for God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. Love your neighbor as yourself as an outpouring of that love for God. And so just as the great commandment serves as a summary of the law and of the prophets, here in Matthew chapter 7, the golden rule likewise summarizes the Sermon on the Mount. Much of what he has taught thus far in the Sermon on the Mount to this point has to do with how we relate to others, doesn't it? For example, he goes on, and these are all separate places, but I think they all kind of go hand in hand, but he talks about anger. He talks about retaliation, and he talks about um, loving our enemies. All these have to do with feelings and emotions and different things that we, we feel toward or have against other people. He talks about having anger towards other people, and he he equates that to murder. Talks about how, um, he says, do not retaliate against other people who have wronged you. He actually says then to go above and beyond, but but our tendency is to what? To take vengeance on our own hands and say, I'm the one, I know the right way to go about doing this. He says, don't retaliate, go above and beyond to make up for that wrong. When it comes to loving your enemies, he says, you've heard that was said, you know, love your neighbor, but hate your enemies. And he says, well, no, 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 love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So he's flipping it on his head. And you can see how the golden rule permeates within that. Don't retaliate, go above and beyond to make up for this, right? Don't, don't hate your enemy, love them. Pray for those who persecute you. Think about oaths. It's the idea of, when he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Like, simple idea. Would you want somebody to make a promise to you and then not keep it? Well, of course not. So let your yes be yes and your no be no. Have the integrity, right? What you say, mean, and mean what you say. Then we get to even just a couple weeks ago, this, this idea of judging others in chapter seven. He says, judge not that you not be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. That right there screams the golden rule, right? Whatever standard you want to be held to, you hold others to that standard and vice versa. So we see that the golden rule largely serves as a summary of what Jesus has taught to this point. And so it's here because he's beginning to wrap up this discourse. Knowing this, we're also able to see how this version of the golden rule is vastly different than the others that we saw before and the many that we didn't. 
It stands distinct to all the rest. How? Because unlike the others, this is based in God's will. We know this because it's taught in his law. It's given to us in his word. This is God's revealed word, his revealed will to us. Why does that matter? Because some might argue that as long as the golden rule is being lived out, it doesn't matter where it comes from. But here's why it matters. The golden rule in Matthew 7 is given an objective standard and purpose because it comes from God himself. It comes from his will. Every other version of the golden rule, it isn't based in God's will. It's based in our will. Every other use of the golden rule is intended to function as some sort of moral or ethical guidepost. But the, the problem with that is that everyone's moral or ethical compass is different, which makes their application of the golden rule entirely subjective without a standard. Apart from God, there is nothing to shape what living out the golden rule looks like. Every other version of the golden rule is essentially an attempt to follow God's will without acknowledging it as God's will and trying to do so apart from God. That never works. Even though they would not say we're seeking to follow God's, God's will, to actually attempt to adhere to the golden rule, which is in God's word, apart from God and his will, it never works. Here's how we know this. Listen to Paul's words. 1 Corinthians chapter two. He says that the natural person, this is the one who is dead in their sin, does not know Jesus. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they're folly to him. They're foolish. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Romans eight, five through eight. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh means those who are in their sin, succumbing to their sin nature. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The author of Hebrews in what we know to be the faith chapter, it's Hebrews chapter 11, states very simply, without faith it is impossible to please God. Romans 14, Paul says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So in light of all this, here's a question. If a non-believer, again, someone who does not know Jesus, someone who has not trusted in and believed Jesus to cover and pay for their sin, if they are seeking to live their lives according to the golden rule, is that pleasing to God? Is it good in his eyes? No, it is not. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Those in the flesh, those who remain in their sin, cannot please God. Now we have to acknowledge 
that they are doing earthly good. Someone who does not know Jesus but is seeking to follow the golden rule and do these things, yes, they are doing earthly good, no question. People are benefiting from their actions, but their love for others isn't rooted in a love for God, but actually a love for themselves. The purpose does not and cannot extend beyond themselves, which means it comes from a place of worshiping self, not worshiping God. And self-worship is never pleasing to God. But this does stir up a second question. If a follower of Jesus seeks to live out the golden rule but does so out of obligation and not primarily from a place of loving God and loving others, is that pleasing to God? The answer is also no. When it comes to living out God's word and following Jesus, there are really two aspects of it to break this down very simply. You have the action itself, right? The thing God calls us to, being obedient to his word. You have the action itself, but then you also have the motive and the heart behind that action. What is leading me to to do that action? What is leading me to follow God? What is leading me to actually do this type of thing? One without the other falls short. Both of these are necessary. And we know this because um, God is repeatedly rebuking Israel in the Old Testament because of this problem. Outwardly, Israel adhered to the law. They made all of the sacrifices, but they were also so steeped in idolatry and injustice. And so their hearts were far from God. That's why the prophets repeatedly had to come to them and say, come back to the Lord. They were outwardly doing all of these things, but God, the message to them was, I do not desire your sacrifices. I desire your heart. Sacrifice without a love for me, without an intent to worship me. God doesn't want it, he says. He doesn't want it. The same problem persisted in Jesus' day with the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. They added their own laws to God's law to make themselves look righteous. And because of this, Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. What a nice compliment. Right? They, they look good outwardly. Right? This, this title, whitewashed tomb, fits it perfectly because they look good outwardly, but they were dead inside. They were more concerned with their outward appearance than they were inward transformation. They were so focused on the actions on the outside that they, they neglected transformation on the inside. That is the primary warning here for us this morning. Are we more concerned with following God's word to look good to others Is our desire to put up a front, to have a good reputation, is that our primary concern? Or perhaps is it to to meet some type of standard that we have come up with? That's why we're doing all of these things. Or do we have a genuine desire to live out God's word? In this case, something like the golden rule because of what he has done in our hearts first. Is the inward transformation that he has worked in our own lives, 
the reason that we are seeking to follow him and obey him? Or are we seeking to follow and obey for some other purpose? Right? Are, we, are we doing this to genuinely live out God's word because of what he has done in our hearts as an outpouring of the love that we have for him and therefore for others as well? Remember who it is that Jesus is addressing here in these crowds. You know, as we, as we look, as we go about through the gospels, you'll notice that there are many crowds that would gather before Jesus and you have to imagine that there are some in the crowd who are just following him for other reasons, very super, superficial purposes. Maybe it was more of a spectacle, more of a paparazzi type of feel for some, just what's gonna happen next. Maybe they're thinking that we can ride Jesus's coattails and we're gonna experience something really great if we stick around long enough. There are always a few of those, but largely those who are following Jesus are doing so because they recognize him for who he is. Jesus is talking to a crowd of people who have been following him that, that he would say are his disciples. Remember who he's talking to here. He's largely addressing citizens of the kingdom. The whole Sermon on the Mount is to show us, his followers, this is what the kingdom is like. And so knowing this, it makes his warning about the wide and narrow gates all the more important. This is one of several warnings that Jesus gives to round out the Sermon on the Mount. Look with me again at verse 13. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So we're given this imagery of two gates, wide gate, narrow gate. And this isn't explicitly stated right here in these verses, but there are two underlying assumptions that we must understand. First, there are two gates and only two gates. There are two paths and only two paths. We have a wide gate and a narrow gate. Only these two. Secondly, that all people, every single individual, will pass through one or the other. There are only two gates and every individual will pass through one gate or the other. So that's the imagery he gives. Let's take a look at the wide gate, right? Again, he uses this very simple illustration that it's easy for us to follow when we really think about this. So picture, you, you come across, there, there are two gates, but our attention right away is drawn to the wide gate. Now this is groundbreaking, but that means the gate's wide. It means it's open really big, right? Now I'm, I'm saying that somewhat facetiously, but here's the, here's the thing that's important to note because it means, like, there's a reason why the gate is wide. What does Jesus say? Those who enter by it are many. The gate is wide to accommodate the massive crowd that will be going through it. The fact that it's wide also makes it very easy to spot, right? It's going to be the first thing that our attention's drawn to. Look, the wide gate, and there's a whole kind of crowd of people walking through this gate, so our attention is going to be drawn to it. It'll be really difficult to miss, he also says that the way is easy. It means it, it doesn't require much effort. It means that for me to, to make my way to the gate and, and to pass through the gate and walk through the gate, that means there, there probably aren't too many twists and turns. It's probably not much of a rocky terrain. It's very flat, very comfortable, very easy to get to. So 
it really, for me to, to enter through the wide gate, I could just kind of go through the motions. I can operate under default, and that will get me to and through the wide gate. And another function of this is that because there are large crowds coming, we, we oftentimes have this herd mentality where we see, well, this is what everyone else is doing. Maybe I should go this way. And so you now have this enticement of the wide gate because we see the crowds also going this direction. They must know what they're doing. This must be, there must be something good on the other side. But Jesus tells us that this way, it's wide, it's easy, and it leads to destruction. And it's here that we can start to pull back from the simple imagery that he gives and we can start to understand the spiritual reality that he's speaking of. The destruction that he's talking about is hell. The destruction that he's talking about is an eternal separation from the God who created us. That is the destination. It's an eternity separated from Jesus. And when we understand this, it helps us understand who the many are that enter the wide gate. Well, we would simply say we're talking about non-believers here. We're talking about those who, who have not trusted and believed in Jesus. They are content in their sin, and in some form or fashion, they're seeking to adhere to things like the golden rule, a law unto themselves, because they're creating their own standard for righteousness, they would never say, I'm seeking righteousness. We don't really use that language. But this individual is someone who is going their own way, doing what is right and good in life according to their own standard or some other standard. And they're saying, this is the way. I know this is the way. Jesus says that path is heading towards destruction. Now, if I were to ask you, right, who's, who's going through the, the wide gate? We probably could have very easily answered, well, okay, non-believers, and yes, that is true. Right, that's, that's obvious in the, the examples that we just gave, but let's not miss the fact that a portion of those entering the wide gate on their path to destruction are those who are outwardly religious, but inwardly dead. Remember that Jesus is also speaking on the Sermon on the Mount largely in, uh, in response to the teachings of the Pharisees who have twisted the law and the meaning of the law has been missed. And so who were the Pharisees? Once again, they were outwardly going through the motions. They were, they were doing all the actions, but inwardly they were dead. They were creating their own standard to follow. They are also those who would be entering by the wide gate. This stands as a warning for us to examine our own faith, to determine whether our outward actions stem from a genuine inward change. Are we seeking to adhere to what the Bible says and am I seeking to do what I think is right because I actually know this because God has changed my heart and I've come to know him. I've trusted and believed in Jesus and therefore I am transformed. Or am I simply going through the motions? Is it genuine? We can walk the walk. We can even somewhat talk the talk outwardly. But actually be dead inside. The Pharisees did it. What makes us think that we are exempt from this possibility? Jesus says that the wide gate, it's many. Yes, non-believers, but that also includes those who are outwardly looking like believers, 
but are inwardly dead. It's a warning for us to examine our own faith, but that's something that we will look at much more in depth at the warning that comes next week. So that's the wide gate. Right, it's the one that's obvious. It stands there. It's, everyone is, is, is able to see the wide gate. It stands out. But Jesus, in the beginning of this verse, verse 13, says, enter by the narrow gate. This is the gate that Jesus is calling us to. He says, enter by the narrow gate. So you can picture the narrow gate. Um, it is next to the wide gate. But it's a little bit, again, it's harder to find. And I will tell you that it is the polar opposite of the wide gate. So let's, again, using our imagination, picture the narrow gate. I know, groundbreaking, narrow. That means it is not like the wide gate. It means it's not very big. It is, it is narrow in nature. I'm, I'm picturing this, um, it's, it's narrow almost as if you were going through like an airport or something and you're going through a turnstile or a turnstile somewhere. It's like, you almost have to kind of do this. Like, it's, it's a narrow path. And the reason why it's narrow is because those who enter by it are what? Few. It doesn't need to accommodate for these large crowds. And therefore, you almost have to go kind of one by one through there. That also means that it's harder to spot. The wide gate's just there. It's almost like you can't miss it. But the narrow gate, you have to find it. It's not as easy to spot. Jesus also says that it's, it's hard, right? The wide gate's easy, but he says that the narrow gate, it's hard. It means that means the path is the path there and the path through. I mean, it's it's difficult. It means that as you're walking along this path, it's it's not smooth. That means there might be some twists, some turns, some ups, some downs. They might potentially face more danger at times. And the very fact that it's narrow and only few are entering by it, that means that, well, it means at the very least it's not as popular, is it? Because if everyone else is moving towards the wide gate. You can almost picture, because I've done this before and I've seen this before, you almost picture everyone's going one way, but everyone starts going one way. And then maybe someone looks and sees there's another way and you might see every once in a while someone break out of that crowd and start going this way. This way is more popular, but there are those who are breaking off and, and heading this direction as well. The very fact that we are told that few are entering by this, tells us a little bit of where the destination is. He says that it leads to life. Entering by the narrow gate, it leads to life. And, and this life that he's talking about is eternal life. Again, we can zoom out of this illustration and understand the spiritual component here. The life that he's talking about is eternal life. Jesus says, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 10.10 says the thief comes to steal, kill, and what? Destroy. That sounds like the wide gate. Destruction. But I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. That is the narrow gate. Jesus extends to us the narrow gate. He calls us to the narrow gate. And again, once again, the destination helps us understand who the few are that enter by the narrow gate. That is those of us who have been inwardly transformed by Jesus. 
those of us who are genuine followers of Jesus who have trusted and believed in him to um, cover our sins and pay the debt that we owed but could not pay. And earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, I believe it's chapter five, verse 20, Jesus makes a statement that unless our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, we cannot enter into heaven. So we have this enter language now paralleling here. What he says, enter the narrow gate. The reality is, for those of us who know Jesus, we have been made righteous by him. The only way that we enter by the narrow gate is by righteousness. See, here's the difference between the wide gate and the narrow gate. Those who are seeking to go through the wide gate, again, they wouldn't call it this, but they're seeking their own righteousness. They're seeking their own standard of righteousness. They're seeking to adhere to all these good moral principles apart from Jesus, which makes them not so good because it's based in sin. They're seeking their own standard of righteousness, trying to earn their way to wherever it is that they think they're going. But for the follower of Jesus who enters by the narrow gate, the righteousness that we receive is not earned, it is given. We call this the great exchange on the cross. When Jesus died for our sins, he took on our sins and his righteousness was given to us. And that means that when God sees the genuine follower of Jesus, he does not see our sin, but he sees the righteousness of Jesus. That's the difference between the two. So Jesus presents these two gates and only two gates and every single one of us comes face to face with the decision to enter by one or the other. And as I was actually thinking about this illustration this week, my brain, and maybe it's the, the immature brain in me, I started thinking to a video game scenario I know that not everyone can relate to this, but I, I think you can still track with me because this is also something that you see in, in movies or stories. It's the classic fork in the road. Now, oftentimes you have the fork in the road that goes complete opposite directions, but we're not gonna go there. It's fork in the road and kind of goes the same direction, but there are two paths. And oftentimes in a video game scenario, what would happen is um, you have one of two paths you choose and there's, an, there's one that on the surface looks easier. And if you were to go down that path, it, you, you'd face fewer enemies, fewer obstacles. That's good, but it'd also reap fewer rewards, in-game rewards that would help you for the rest of the game. Then on the other hand, you have this other path that's like, well, you can tell that this is a little bit tougher. Maybe there are more difficult enemies, more difficult obstacles, but... The game, it functions in a way that if you go this way and you get through here, you're going to get more rewards that will help you later on. Now, here's the catch. You can go both ways and you end up in the same place in the end. Right? I'm gonna take the easy way, but I'm not gonna get as many rewards to help me for later on. Or I can go the hard way, get rewards, get through it, um, come out better, and we're gonna end up on the same path and we're gonna move forward. That's a scenario that was kind of playing in my mind and it was all to say that that is simply fantasy. This idea that we can choose either the wide gate or the narrow gate and we can end up all in the same place, that is based in fantasy. It is not based in reality. There's only one way. The wide and narrow gates do not lead to the same destination, but that is what much of the world would claim and, and if not claim, but they would hope for. 
Again, some would point to things like the golden rule and say, hey, look, look, it's largely the same. Jesus says the same thing. This is one of many ways to God. And then, man, I just think right back to John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And that no one comes to the Father. No one gets to heaven except through me. The narrow way is the only way to God. And Christ has earned that for us. And so if you are here this morning and you do not know Jesus, I want to make it very abundantly clear on what Jesus' words mean for you. You see, in your own morals, in your own desire to be perfect, in your own standard, you have set standards for yourself that you think you can adhere to things like the golden rule, for example. You can go about this life doing good things and you think that this this standard is going to earn you something on behalf of God, right? It's our own standard of righteousness and I wanna tell you that it will always, always, always fall short. If we are seeking to earn anything from God, we will fall short, especially and only when it's apart from Jesus, so we can do all these, seek to do all this earthly good, but it, it's not stemming from a love of God. John 15, 5, Jesus says that apart from me, you can do nothing. That's a blanket statement that applies especially to those who don't know Christ. Apart from him, there is no good. There's earthly good that can be done, but eternal good, there is nothing that can be done apart from him. And if this is your path, if you continue to seek this, you are going towards the wide gate. Like you are walking down with everybody else who thinks the same thing. You are marching down towards the wide gate. And Jesus says that the destination is destruction. It is eternity separated from him. And the reason why is because when we seek to earn our own righteousness, guess what? We're trusting ourselves and not Jesus to cover our sins. That will always lead towards this destruction and separation from God. But it doesn't need to end that way. Again, Jesus says in verse 13, enter by the narrow gate. If you are on a march towards the wide gate right now, you have the opportunity. You can open your eyes to the fact that, look, many in this room, we've, we were all heading towards the wide gate at one point. But because of the righteousness of Jesus, we, we're able to see that there's another way. He has made a way that we don't need to follow the crowd. We don't need to follow the way that everyone else is going, we can go the narrow path. That's before you too. If that is you, if you do not know Jesus, you can go the narrow path. It's there before you. For the follower of Jesus, we're heading towards the narrow gate. We've entered to the narrow gate. Our destination, this life that he promises, that is secure. We have no fear of this eternal destruction that awaits those in the wide gate. But there's still a warning for us because the way of the wide gate is still so enticing to us. Because Jesus says that the way of the narrow gate is hard. 
following Jesus is hard. Sometimes, some seasons more than others. It is difficult. And I tell you what, I know my tendencies, if it's difficult, my tendency is to not want to go do that thing. Well, what's the alternative to take the easy way? So even for the follower of Jesus, though the narrow gate is before us and though we have this life and that is secure, it's often tempting for us, especially when things get difficult, to look over the way, look over at that wide gate and say, man, it would just be so much easier if I just went this way. It'd be so much easier if I did the things that they did, if I could just go do what I want. We still, dealing with our sin nature, face the allure of sin Jesus warns us that following him would be difficult. He says, if anyone would come after me, take up his cross and follow me. Deny himself, take up your cross and follow me. It's hard. But that life that Jesus promises is not just some far off thing in eternity. It is, but it's also for here and now. The life, the abundant life that Jesus offers, that he offers to us, we can have it right now. We can embrace it right now. And I tell you what, when we are enticed by the the, the sin of this world and we are enticed by the way of the wide gate, we are robbing ourselves of that life and joy that Jesus has for us right here and now. So don't fall for it. Don't give in to the lie that this is better. Keep going. Embrace the life that Jesus has given us and that he has earned for us on our behalf. The way of Jesus is hard, but it's worth it. So keep going and be encouraged that we are walking that narrow path together. This isn't a solo mission. This isn't a solo path. As we are heading towards that narrow gate, we've got each other to spur us on. Let's pray. God, we are grateful that you have made a way. We are grateful that you saw us in the midst of our hopelessness and our distress that would lead us towards the wide gate. Lord, you did not leave us in our sin, but you made a way. You made the narrow gate so that we may know you. God, we don't want to take that for granted. Would you, by your spirit, convict us of sin? Would you remind us of your word so that when we face the the inevitable temptations of this world, the temptations to go back to the way of the wide gate, to compromise what you call us to in your word, Lord, would you convict us? Would you give us the faith? Would you give us the strength to follow you wholeheartedly when things get tough, God? God, we need you, and we do all this because we know that you are worthy. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. This has been a message from the chapel. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about the chapel or any of our campuses, including Akron, Green, Wadsworth, Kenmore, Cuyahoga Falls, Nordonia, and Medina, please go to our website at thechapel.life.